So it's been a few months since I have been up here uh, preaching, and, I, and I've missed being up here and preaching, but just now I was just reminded uh, how much I've also missed Max hearing you do the pastoral prayer. So thank you for serving us in that way today, and it was great, great to hear you. Um, so uh, we have Ezra 7 today. We're continuing in our series uh, in Ezra, and Ezra 7 is a long passage. So what I thought I would uh, do today is um, I'm just going to read it in, in chunks and then talk about each uh, chunk as I go along. Um, and before, So before we dive in, let me just pray for us one more time as, as we begin this time together. Lord, thanks so much again uh, for this time and for your word. And as we have just sung that you are a speaking God, and we thank you uh, for uh, the words that you've given us today. And we do pray that you would conform us and shape us and fashion us more and more in your likeness. And we thank you for this gathering. Help us never to take it for granted, uh, even as we consider uh, how difficult it is uh, for many of our brothers and sisters to gather in this way. So we're grateful to be here. And we thank you uh, for your love. We thank you for Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. So I've mentioned before that uh, Friday nights are... Uh, and our family are generally movie night. Uh, we eat pizza, we hang out together, we watch a movie that we all agree upon. And uh, as our kids have gotten older, we have typically let them pick the movie. But about a month ago, the kids uh, showed Catherine and I kindness and grace and mercy and decided it was okay if Catherine and I picked our Friday night movie out. Now, possibly due to some bad selections by me in the past, our kids are always a little suspicious when we pick out an old movie, and so it took some convincing, but eventually everyone agreed to watch an old classic many of you have probably seen called The Karate Kid. Actually held up pretty well. I thought, you know, I thought it was good, and you know, we all enjoyed it. And I hope you'll bear with me as I use a 35-year-old movie to introduce a sermon. But one of the interesting aspects of this movie is how the main character, Daniel, is trained by his mentor, Mr. Miyagi. Daniel wants to learn how to fight, but Daniel ends up spending a ton of time doing lots of seemingly mundane things, like, like painting a large fence, by painting a house, waxing cars, among many other things. And he does this so much that his muscles begin to ache, and he begins to wonder what in the world he's doing all of this for. But eventually he learns that by repeating certain motions again and again as he's done these chores, that he's learned some really foundational things that will help him to championship, which I'm sure the karate experts in this room today will probably roll. A few weeks ago, Max shared about how the habit of picking up his phone first thing in the morning, and then how those truths shape our lives. But the place, I think, where we see those prominent thing that we'll see is the repetition of maybe the most significant the Red Sea, as great as that single story is. It's an event that describes and shapes God's people, and it still did in the time of Ezra, and I want us to see it still does today. And so we pick up in Ezra 7. Now, I think we should have named this sermon series Ezra and Nehemiah people during this time. And when we left off in Ezra, at the end of Ezra 6, we saw the rededication of the temple. And then the people celebrated the Passover, which, as many of you know, after Ezra 6, we actually get a break for about 60 years before the story picks up in Ezra 7. So let's keep that in mind as we dive in to Ezra 7. I'll start with verses 1 to 10. It says, now after this, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, the son of Sareah, son of Azariah, son of Hilkiah, son of Shalom, son of Zadok, son of Ahitub, son of Amariah, son of Azariah, son of Marioth, son of Zehariah, son of Uzi, son of Buckeye, son of Abishua, 
son of Phinehas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the chief priest. This Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And the king granted him all that he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. And there went up also to Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes the king, some of the people of Israel, and some of the priests and Levites, the singers and gatekeepers, and the temple servants. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. From the first day of the first month, he began to go up from Babylonia. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem, for the good hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. So as we just mentioned, there's this 60-year gap between Ezra 6 and 7, and we don't know a ton about those years, but we do know some things because this is the time when another book of the Bible happens, and that is the book of Esther. And honestly, I, I hadn't really thought about this a lot until someone brought it up in our men's Bible study on Tuesday, but Artaxerxes, the king of Persia, who's mentioned here, was the son of Xerxes, who was the king who reigned over Persia during the time of Esther. And if you're not familiar with the book of Esther, that was actually a very, very difficult time for the Jewish people, as they came extremely close to being killed off by the Persians. But God uses a man named Mordecai and a woman named Esther to intervene and to save God's people. It's a remarkable story. And I think as we read this story in Ezra of how God cares for his people, it is really good and I think important for us to remember that that God's people would have already been wiped out at this point, except for God protecting them. And so we hear about Artaxerxes, the king, but the more significant character here is this man named Ezra. One of the ways we see his significance is that there's a genealogy here, and the genealogy connects him to several people, but especially connects him to Aaron who was the brother of Moses, and as this passage reminds us, Aaron was the chief priest. And so Ezra has some standing and and credibility here just because of his lineage. But the most significant thing about Ezra isn't his lineage, it's how he exercises his role as a scribe. That's someone who was specially commissioned to, to copy and to study and to teach the law of God. The passage tells us that he was skilled in the law of Moses. And that's a specific, very specific word there to to kind of show how adept he was. Like he was really quick in studying and knowing the word of God. You know, one of the things I've tried to do during the pandemic is to learn a little bit, how to be a little bit more handy around the house. And I've had some very, very moderate successes, but no one is going to mistake me for a master craftsman, especially when they see me work with tools. Because for me to use a new tool, it takes like five YouTube videos, Several rounds of trial and error, probably some encouragement and help from Catherine, and the end result, if I'm lucky, ends up being passable. But that's not how Ezra was when it came to the Word of God. He, he knew it. He was adept with it. And a few verses later, we hear a big reason why this was the case. In verse 10, it says that Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. You know, when Max was preaching in Malachi, we saw a picture of God, you know, really holding himself out to his people, but his people not quite giving themselves to him. But here in Ezra, we get a really beautiful picture of someone who really desires to give himself to God, setting his heart to study the law of the Lord, setting his heart on it. Such an interesting phrase, isn't it? 
it isn't just that, that Ezra was, was a scribe, and so, you know, this is kind of what he had to do. He's punching in every day, you know, nine to five. No, this is the desire of his heart. And while we don't know a ton about Ezra's background in every aspect, we do know that he lived in Babylon, an impressive city. And we do know that he had access to powerful people. But what's interesting is that Ezra wasn't ultimately enamored with power or comfort or glittery objects. He was enamored with the word of God. And among all the shaping forces that would have been prevalent in the ancient Persian Empire, and there would have been a ton of them, it was the word of God that ultimately shaped Ezra, even in exile from the promised land. And we know it shaped him because he set his heart, not just to study the word, but also to do it and to teach it. And I think all those things really hang together. There's a depth to knowing God's word that is reflected not merely in knowing what Scripture says, but finding it beautiful and having it transform our lives. As we sang earlier, shaping and fashioning us in the likeness of Jesus. And you know, the people you want to learn from are those who exemplify this, those who are shaped by God's word and who exemplify those fruits of God's spirit, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, shaped by the Spirit. And Ezra was being shaped in this way. And now his desire is to teach others. And so Ezra was skilled, and Ezra had given himself to God's Word. But there's a third factor that I think is the most significant of all, and without it, really everything else would have been lost. And that is that the hand of the Lord was upon him. We see that, yes, Ezra was committed to God, but ultimately, God was committed to him. We see twice in these first 10 verses that God's hand is upon Ezra. And in both cases, the fact that God's hand is upon Ezra, it kind of explains something that happened. In verse 6, we hear that the king granted him all that he asked. Why? For the hand of the Lord was upon Ezra. And in verse 9, we hear in a little bit of a mini flash forward that Ezra indeed made it to Jerusalem again because the good hand of his God was on him. And then in verses 11 to 26, we really see and we really get a detailed description of how God showed this incredible kindness to Ezra and as a result to all of God's people. So I'm going to read verses 11 to 26, which is the longest section of our passage. It says, This is a copy of the letter that King Artaxerxes gave to Ezra the priest, the scribe, a man learned in matters of the commandments of the Lord and his statutes for Israel. Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven, peace. And now I make a decree that any one of the people of Israel or their priests or Levites in my kingdom who freely offers to go to Jerusalem may go with you. For you are sent by the king and his seven counselors to make inquiries about Judah and Jerusalem according to the law of your God, which is in your hand, and also to carry the silver and gold that the king and his counselors have freely offered to the God of Israel, whose dwelling is in Jerusalem, with all the silver and gold that you shall find in the whole province of Babylonia, and with the freewill offerings of the people and the priests, vow willingly for the house of their God that is in Jerusalem. With this money, then, you shall with all diligence buy bulls, rams, and lambs with their grain offerings and their drink offerings, and you shall offer them on the altar of the house of your God that is in Jerusalem. Whatever seems good to you and your brothers to do with the rest of the silver and gold, you may do according to the will of your God. 
the vessels that have been given you for the service of the house of your God, you shall deliver before the God of Jerusalem. And whatever else is required for the house of your God, which it falls to you to provide, you may provide it out of the king's treasury. And I, Artaxerxes, the king, make a decree to all the treasurers in the province beyond the river, whatever Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven, requires of you, let it be done with all diligence, up to 100 talents of silver, 100 cores of wheat, 100 baths of wine, 100 baths of oil, and salt, without prescribing how much. Whatever is decreed by the God of heaven, let it be done in full for the house of the God of heaven, lest his wrath be against the realm of the king and his sons. We also notify you that it shall not be lawful to impose tribute, custom, or toll on any one of the priests, the Levites, the singers, the doorkeepers, the temple servants, or other servants of this house of God. And you, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God that is in your hand, appoint magistrates and judges who may judge all the people in the province beyond the river, all such as know the laws of your God. And those who do not know them, you shall teach. Whoever will not obey the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be strictly executed on him, whether for death or for punishment or for confiscation of his goods or for imprisonment. So not only does Ezra have permission, we see, to go to Jerusalem, but he has a letter certifying this fact, and he goes essentially with, with the military and financial backing of this great empire. Again, considering where the Jewish people were in the eyes of the Persian leaders just one generation ago, it's remarkable to consider all that is laid out here. I mean, look at, look at what we see. We see that Ezra is explicitly sent by Artaxerxes and his seven officials. We see that the people of Israel are free to go with him. We see that the king himself and his officials have given gold and silver for them to take with them. We see that they're also allowed to take any offerings from the people. And we see that they should buy what they need with all diligence in order to make sacrifices at the temple and whatever else is required. And to make sure this happens, Artaxerxes decrees that the local treasurers should act on all of this and help Ezra out in any way they can. So silver, wheat, wine, oil, as much salt as they wanted. It's always hard, you know, to translate the, these old measurements into modern-day terms, but one commentator I read said this probably would have provided for about two years' worth of offerings at the temple. This was a really great way for them to start again. And Artaxerxes further protects Ezra and those employed in serving God at the temple by saying that they were exempt from all kinds of tax. They were to be freed up in as many ways as possible to do what they were called to do. And Ezra himself is freed up to appoint judges to judge the people of the land, which probably refers here to the Jewish people. Ezra is coming to reform God's people according to God's word, and we're going to see that as we keep going in Ezra. And now he has the means to do so. He even has the backing of the empire, that those who disobey should be judged and be judged with strictness and seriousness. So with all that said, we have to ask the question, why did Artaxerxes do all of this? Was he enamored with the word of God, with the God of Israel, the way that Ezra was? Probably not. But we know two things that were going on that may have motivated Artaxerxes in this direction. And the first comes right from the text. In verse 23, the letter states that all these things should be done for the God of heaven, lest his wrath be against the realm of the king and his sons. It's a good desire. Artaxerxes, according to this letter, does not want to offend this God 
that Ezra worshipped, and so it made good sense for him to do what he could to appease this god. But the second reason for this we know from history, that Persia, like many other empires, found that they could best maintain their empire and their power by keeping different religious groups happy, rather than trying to like crush them and assimilate them all into one state religion. Because when they did that, it often led to rebellion. And further to that, we know that at the time of Ezra's journey, Persia was dealing with some rebellion, specifically in Egypt. And the last thing they needed was some other uprising going on in Jerusalem. So it made really good political sense for the Persian government to treat God's people in this way. That's just the way God ordained it. It's the way that it worked out. And it's a good thing for us to remember. You know, sometimes it's going to be advantageous for the powers that be to be a blessing to Christians. Sometimes it is not going to be advantageous to them. And those winds, as, as we see, they blow back and forth. They can change direction really quickly. And I think just being sober and upfront about this can really help us. It keeps us from triumphalism on one hand, when it feels like things are going our way, and it keeps us from despair on the other. And we all know what a big deal national politics feels like right now. And yes, of course, it's important for our discipleship to be reflected in that realm. But at the same time, remembering how quickly the winds shift allows us to take a breath, step back from it, have a healthy distance from the extremes that, that tend to dominate the narratives that are, that are out there, in case you haven't noticed, to realize that at times politicians and power, powerful people, yes, we honor them, as Max just prayed for our leaders, but at times we're also aware that they might just see us as a means to an end. And when we're not useful to them anymore, many times they'll, they'll move on. It happens all the time in the Bible. It's happened quite often in history. And in fact, you can see it even with Artaxerxes. I was blown away by that. I was talking with Max about it this week. It's just almost comical. We know from elsewhere in Ezra that, that, that later on, Artaxerxes would order the work stopped in Jerusalem, which pleased a different group of people. And then we know from the beginning of Nehemiah that he allowed Nehemiah to go back and work on the wall again. And that's just one leader, let alone different political parties and different administrations. We're just reminded that depending on political leaders is a dead end. And so some healthy distance can be really, really helpful. Sometimes the powers that be will benefit us, sometimes they won't. But as we are shaped by the word of God, we will see more and more how he is the one who cares for us. He's the one who protects us. And even the ones in power that feel like a blessing to us or feel like a curse to us, they're all put there by him, right? And that's why I think Ezra's response at the end of this passage, it, it just, it's exactly the right one. And it's so, it's so good. In verses 27 and 28, listen to what, what's said. It says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem and who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty officers. I took courage for the hand of the Lord my God was on me and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. See, after all is said and done, Ezra blesses not Artaxerxes, who called himself the king of kings, ironically, but the Lord, the God of his fathers. Yes, Artaxerxes was the one who, who approved all these things, all this blessing for God's people, but 
but it's only because God himself put it into his heart. And now the temple will be beautified, which could refer to the offerings or that were going to be given there, or it could refer to, to actual improvements, physical work. But the important thing is that Ezra has the eyes to see how richly God has loved him and blessed him by giving him this favor before the king and the king's mighty officers. See, I just love that as Ezra gets ready for what is ahead, because there's a lot ahead for Ezra. He stops for a minute to see and rejoice in God's faithfulness. You know, one of my best memories uh, in what is now many years serving here uh, at Meadowcroft, and a few of you were there, is a leadership retreat we took about 11 years ago. See, the church had just been through a really hard time, and things were in rough shape. And some of you that were here, (laughs) you remember And there were a lot of problems and challenges to deal with. And, you know, we didn't, like, blind ourselves to those or anything like that. But before we got to those problems and challenges, we asked ourselves, how do we see God's grace operating right now at Meadowcroft? I still have the list. Given where we were at, it's a surprisingly long list. That's a good reminder of God's faithfulness. And I'll just say that given how challenging the last year has been for Meadowcroft among just about every church, It's so, so important for us to continue to see God's grace at work in the world, in our church, in our fellow members. See, Ezra shows us what it means to have eyes to see these things, to see the faithfulness and goodness of God in circumstances. And we see what it leads to. After seeing all of this, Ezra basically expresses himself, I think, in a way very similar to what the Apostle Paul said so many years later. Look, if God is for us, who can be against us? And when Ezra sees this, it leads him to live courageously, not according to fear. And so he prepares for the difficult journey ahead. Ezra's courage is directly related to the eyes that God has given him to see how God has shown his steadfast love to him and to God's people. And so Ezra 7, I think, ends on a a pretty optimistic note. The Israelites are going to leave their exile once again. They're going to head back to Jerusalem once again. And we've looked closely at the passage, but I think it's so important for us to place it in an overall context. You know, I said at the beginning of the sermon that this passage is very much kind of a, a repeat of the robust biblical theme of the Exodus. And look, if you've heard the Exodus story from the book of Exodus, I know many of you have, You'll remember that God's people were led by a man whose hand the Lord was on, Moses. And Ezra very much fills the role of Moses here. You might also remember that there was a powerful and fickle king at the center of the Exodus story, the Pharaoh. And while Artaxerxes is certainly very different from Pharaoh, again, he's an extremely powerful king who is fickle and who wants to protect his empire and he wants to escape the wrath of God. And this leads to him sending God's people away. You might also remember from Exodus that the people made their exit with incredible treasure from the people of Egypt because God had put it in the hearts of the Egyptians to do so, and they were given favor. And what happens here in Ezra? There are generous gifts from the people, but also from the king's treasury to send the people along with. And it's the first day of the the first month when Ezra leaves for Jerusalem. Just as in the book of Exodus, God told the people that they're leaving Egypt would mark the start of a new year for them. It was a new and fresh start in the book of Exodus, and it's another new and fresh start here. And so when we read Ezra 7, I'm convinced we are meant to remember the Exodus narrative. 
And that Exodus narrative is so important to the Israelites and really to all of God's people because it is emblematic of what God does with his people, emblematic of God's mission in this world to glorify himself in part by pursuing a people for himself, delivering them from bondage, bringing them into a place where he would dwell in a special way with them. That's the narrative that shapes and forms God's people all the time and especially in difficult times. But one reason that this Exodus narrative happens again and again throughout the Bible is because every time there's an Exodus, it doesn't quite live up to the long-term expectations. In the original Exodus, God's people disobeyed and they wandered the wilderness for 40 years. Then they failed to take the promised land despite God's great promises to them and his care for them. And again and again, God's people would suffer God's discipline and then God would intervene and save them and then things would fall flat again. Those of you who have read the Old Testament are very familiar with this pattern. We've already seen that pattern, that rhythm in some ways in this brief book of Ezra. Right? The people return, but then they face opposition. People return and good things happen, but the temple doesn't live up to its former glory. And we're going to see the same thing here. The people return and good things will happen, but there's going to be sin, there's going to be hardship, there's going to be opposition. See, every one of these exodus moments in the Bible is a cause for celebration. But every one of these exodus moments in the Bible is a cause to long and wait for what is to come. And that's why the most important exodus in the Bible is the one that happens much later. See, the exodus theme continues in the New Testament, and eventually Jesus comes to earth, and while he's here, there comes this, this, this really unique moment where he goes up on a mountain and he appears in a glorified state along with two of the central figures of the Old Testament, Moses and Elijah. And do you know what he talked about with them? He talked with them about his departure, or literally his exodus. See, the ultimate exodus is the one that we just celebrated last weekend. When Jesus went to Jerusalem, was killed, and was resurrected, and eventually ascended to the right hand of his Father. And that exodus lays the groundwork for all of us who trust in Jesus. That one day, one day we too will depart this world full of sin and suffering and dwell with him in the new and better Jerusalem. A new world full, free of sin and free of suffering. You think those Christians in Nigeria Max prayed for are longing for that exodus? I think so. And so do we. And in the meantime, we're shaped by God's word, just like Ezra was. And we're shaped by that exodus, by the exodus story that was at the center of the very word that Ezra carried with him to Jerusalem. And as we walk through this world, we rejoice when this exodus story gets played out in our own life and in the life of the church. When he brings us or, or a loved one to himself in faith, when he delivers us from struggling with a persistent sin, when, when he delivers us from a difficult season, when we heal from an illness or an injury, when he gets us to the other side of a pandemic, when we hear of persecuted Christians being delivered, if you look at your life, if you look at your church, if you look at the global church, if you look at church history, you will see many exoduses everywhere you look. But in this life, just like in Ezra, no exodus is final. There's always another sin to deal with, another difficult season to go through. But as God shapes us according to the exodus story, he changes us. And we see his goodness and his faithfulness and his steadfast love to us 
and we remember that, yes, he ultimately will deliver us. Look, we know the last year has been a lot of things. <laughs> Maybe the best word I've, I've heard to describe it is apocalyptic, <laughs> because an apocalypse is a revealing, right? And I think the last year has, has revealed a lot, of, a lot of things, a lot of hard things, a lot of cracks and conflicts, not only uh, in our nation, but, but in the church, sure, as well. And it's a hard time. It's a heavy time. We can be realistic about that. But God, look, God has been there before, <laughs> and he is faithful. And this is such a good time for us to press into this Exodus narrative that happens again and again in the Bible and in church history. See, the kings and rulers of this world, however you feel about them, their hearts are in the hands of the Lord. I'm telling you, they are. And just as God delivered Israel again and again, and just as God delivered Ezra, and just as Jesus himself was delivered out of that tomb, so too will he deliver his church. And so we take courage. The same Lord whose hand was upon Ezra has his hands under us as well. Let's pray together. Lord, we are so thankful for your kindness and generosity that we see, that we see remarkably here in Ezra 7. We thank you for turning the heart of Artaxerxes to be a blessing to the people. And we thank you that you are in control of all of history. And we thank you that you love your people. And we thank you for the Exodus narrative and the way we see it again and again in the Bible and even in our own lives. And Lord, as we continue to walk through this hard season, Lord, would you please continue to shape us according to this narrative. And would you please help us to long for the ultimate exodus that we look forward to someday when Jesus returns. Lord, we're so grateful that we can gather to worship you. We're so grateful for the chance to sing of all that you've done for us and all that you will surely do. And I pray, even for those of us that, that are really struggling, that you would give us a deep joy in your great love for us. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.